Hey guys, I am your host, Kristen LaFrance, aka KLF, aka Crispy LaPants, aka if you are my older brother, Christy. Anyways, I am here with our first recap with KLF episode. And I'm not going to lie to you guys, this segment is going to be a little bit of a hodgepodge. So some weeks we are going to have me interviewing somebody about a topic that is interesting or hot in our community. Other weeks, you're just going to hear me talking to me. And this week is going to be one of those weeks. So today we're going to talk about a couple things that are happening in the industry, a couple news stories that have come out in general quick hitters. We're going to talk about Clavio's reported potential IPO, Apple Pay. We're going to talk about the influx of celebrity-led brands, omni-channel and the importance of retail for D2C-focused brands this year. So going to be a really fun episode. So excited to be back. Nervous about recording again. Have already messed up about 100 times. Just messed up saying the word messed up. But we're going to have fun. I am so happy to be back on the mic. Thank you so much for listening to me. Again, I am Kristen LaFrance, and this is the Hit Subscribe Recap by Recharge. All right, let's talk about, first, some big reports in the industry. Things will greatly impact D2C brands, if not our D2C community. First up, a report coming out this week, Clavio. To IPO. Remember when we all couldn't even figure out how to pronounce Clavio, 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 Clavio? <laughs> we all know how to do it now. Anyways, the uh, Wall Street Journal reported this week that Clavio, the Boston based marketing automation startup that we all use for email, has raised more than $775 million, is going to pull the IPO trigger later this week. If it is true that the company has hired bakers to prepare a listing, as the article states on the Wall Street Journal, Clavio could end the long drought of tech startup IPOs. That being said, there has been lots of layoffs in the tech environment. I think we've seen quite a few of them. Alphabet, Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, Salesforce have all laid off lots of employees, and we even saw... Clavio joining this trend not too long ago, laid off 140 employees just last month. This could potentially be part of an effort to really reduce operational costs as a lot of investors are really wanting to see companies do. Also could be argued that something is not quite operationally correct inside of Clavio. So it'll be curious to see how this goes. I think this will be one of the first real big tech IPOs in our direct community where we really know the people operating at Clavio and we understand how deeply it is integrated into so many of the brands that all of us work with, work for, or are trying to promote because we love them. So I think it'll be a very interesting thing to watch. I'm not going to read too much of this article. It is a TechCrunch release. I will make sure this is linked in the show notes, but otherwise... This is an interesting story we will watch throughout this segment on the recap. If we have any updates, I'll make sure to let you know. Right now, there's a lot of marketing jargon out there like logjam and a beat da 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 You never know how to say this. And gap, net income. Lots of silly little tech acronyms and e-com acronyms. But as for now, the story is still developing. Just an interesting one to make sure to keep your eyes on. Another big update this week, Apple Pay announced their pay 
later plan, which could theoretically upend the buy now, pay later space. So we're talking about a firm. Klarna Shop Pay has even rolled out some Shop Now, Pay Later features. Very interesting situation here. Obviously, if you have an Apple phone, an Apple computer, you're inundated in Apple, they own your whole life. And it is a potentially very big upside for Apple. Curious, though, to see what happens with actual consumers, because right now the max is at 1K. I think most consumers are pretty much holding these loans for big purchases like couches, Pelotons. Maybe I'm just saying this because these are the things that I have on buy now, pay later loans. But very interesting to watch this roll out. The big advantage is obviously a massive user base for Apple. It's native to the platform. Apple Cash has done really well against Venmo because it is right there in the checkout. It is connected to your entire Apple Pay system. There is a trusted security system around Apple. We could argue all day whether or not that data is actually protected, how it's protected. But right now, consumers are really trusting Apple and the way they're handling their data. Easy to access, inexpensive, no interest. But we will see how this kind of rolls out over time with actual merchants. What merchants will activate this on their site? Will Shopify allow it to be activated on their site? If so, how? How will it all roll out? How will it compete with Affirm and Klarna and ShopPay installments? And how will Buy Now, Pay Later impact, especially the, the younger consumers is something I'm very curious about. We're really selling this no interest, no debt kind of Buy Now, Pay Later system, which feels a little schemy to me uh, as a millennial coming out of the student loan situation that a lot of us have gone through. So we will see how many Gen C, Gen, Gen C, Gen Z users actually use this option. Do they want to go through Apple? Do they trust Apple? I think this will be a nice point in our commerce story on how much do people really trust Apple and their privacy versus how much is it that if we have to give our data to somebody, it's going to be Apple. So I think we will see kind of people making really big decisions about how they use their commerce tools now that Apple Pay is out, but we will keep up with this story as we will keep up with all of them. So the next thing I want to talk about is something I've talked about for an entire show before, which is the importance of retail for D to C. And it seems almost against the grain to say D2C and retail have to come together, but it's something that we've really, really seen over the last couple of years. And I feel like in my career, I've been kind of on the pulse of and watching for a long time. So, you know, when I first really got into D2C four or five years ago, it was the golden era of D2C. It cost $10 to put up a Facebook ad that you could get 10 customers right out of. The ROI was immediate. It was so clear and easy to track. And a lot of that has been changed. We had kind of this re-upswing of D2C as a business model in the pandemic when none of us could go grocery shopping. But now that we've kind of come back to whatever this quote-unquote new normal is, however you want to define it, we're starting to see D2C being a little bit less of a unicorn again, meaning D2C is no longer a business strategy. D2C is back to being a channel in which to sell your products. 
And what we're starting to see is watching brands understand that D2C gets more expensive. The cost of acquisition keeps going up. It is harder to track, harder to understand, harder to even analyze or figure out what to do next with. So we are looking more towards wholesale retail and figuring out how to show up in all of the places our customers, consumers are shopping and making the best out of each channel. Something really interesting that I've heard from a lot of different brands as I've been talking to founders and operators is a new challenge where it really used to be the questions we were asking were if you have successful D2C and you are launching in retail or you have successful retail and you're launching in D2C, how do you marry those two channels? How do you drive somebody from discovery and retail to loyalty and D2C, which is the ultimate best case scenario, except for now you have to think about not cannibalizing either one of those channels. So can you grow in retail without taking anything away from your D2C channel? If anything, adding enriched data, qualitative information to your D2C channel and vice versa. Can you grow your D2C channel? Can you grow your subscriber base? Can you grow your retention numbers? Can you grow the LTV, the ALV, all of the stupid acronyms that nobody outside of our industry knows that we're talking about? Can you grow those things without cannibalizing retail because you do not want to get into a situation where you're upsetting the retailers that you're working with because you're taking purchase number two, three, or four away from the retailers. This has opened up an entire new channel of thought for my brain, and it's so interesting to watch. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest stories of the year is how brands that have won on D2C, how they transition into retail without upsetting the other side of their business and vice versa. How does a brand who started and is winning and understands retail, how do they enter the D2C channel without upsetting retail? And to go even just a half step further, how do they figure out D2C in a way that feeds retail? And how does retail set up a way to feed D2C without cannibalizing or stealing success from either channel. I've talked to brands like Primal Kitchen, Magic Spoon, Catalina Crunch, Graza, Ritual, so many different companies that are thinking about this. And it is the most perplexing, interesting challenge I think I've seen for a brand in my career because now we're no longer looking at different channels being different businesses, but in order to win, both have to work, both cannot compete, but both have to feed each other. This is one of those times where I feel like I truly don't have the answer. So we are going to find it this season for sure. We will at least begin to uncover some of the ways that brands are doing it. But just a couple pieces of news that are really going on. We're seeing lots of, you know, frozen food brands putting D2C Kind of on the back burner, seeing lots of food and Bev put D2C a little bit on the back burner to focus on the retail expansion. What is interesting about this is we are simultaneously seeing the data say that these brands, these merchants are going into retail. Also, our data is saying that subscriber metrics 
on food and Bev are going up. So LTV is higher than it's ever been. Retention is higher than it's ever been. AOV is higher than it's ever been. At the same time, churn is as high as it's ever been for food and Bev. So we're really starting to look at not just how do you launch, how do you survive, but how do you thrive as a food and Bev brand, especially across multiple channels. We're seeing lots of different kinds of brands, categories of products going into retail, which is super exciting. Just to highlight a couple of brands who are really acting out what we're seeing here, this this venture into retail and D2C and omni-channel work. We have seen just this week, Gainful has launched a customizable protein product at all Target stores. We are also seeing Ritual Vitamins expand its retail presence with a Target launch this week. And lastly, another big launch, Sephora has added Mod to its in-store rollout, which means sexual wellness is finally getting represented in retail. So Omnichannel being a big focus for both the biggest brands that we're seeing and some of the smaller brands. But if you are in D2C, whether you are food and bev, beauty and wellness, supplements, health, pet and animal, I think 2023 is going to be defined by the Omnichannel connection, which is defined in a different way than it ever has been, where it used to really be about connecting discovery and retail to loyalty and D2C. I am interested to follow the story this year to see what happens when retailers no longer want you or are upset with brands who are taking loyalty purchases away from their shelves. How does a brand actually win in both channels without cannibalizing either one? Lastly, let's talk about some fun news. And one of my favorite topics ever to start with, We're going to move on now to some topics that are just generally exciting for our industry or interesting to know about. One of them being the combination between brands, celebrities, brands and creators, brands and influencers. And this is seems like a very broad topic, but I think we can come down to something very simple, which is we understand as brands right now the amount of content we have to create to even just show up in the market, far less to be successful, is almost, if not completely impossible for most startup brands to actually achieve. So what we're seeing is this influx of brands working with existing creators, existing celebrities, existing influencers who have an audience who are already connected to something deeper. So something as simple as, I did not see Halsey twice last year because only I like Halsey's music. I saw Halsey twice last year in concert because I love Halsey. I love who she is. I love the music she produces. I love what she represents. And me showing up at her concerts says something about me when I post about it. So we're starting to see this come out into brands. So everything from rapper ASAP Rocky, I feel like the most boomer ever saying rapper, ASAP Rocky, but he has an alcoholic beverage brand, Mercer and Prince, launched a year ago. Post Malone has a wine brand, Mason Number no. 9. Daniel Ricardo has a fashion brand and a wine brand. We've got Maya Rudolph on M&M's, H.E.R. going with L'Oreal Paris. Everything under the sun, you're starting to see the celebrities getting their hands dirty 
making contributions with their audience. So I think this is a tying together of lots of trends. We talked a lot about in the past couple of years, community-led brands, consumer-led brands, the power shifting from the brand itself and only a few household name brands to multiple brands. Now we're even moving further than that to the brands do not have the power the consumers do. The people they are interested in have the power to then change commerce, which then changes society. We start to see this entire flywheel happening. So one thing I think we're going to continually talk about this season, especially on this recap, is what does it look like for a true collaboration to come together for a brand who is selling something to come together with a celebrity who is selling something different, but is also selling a lifestyle? How do those two things come together into you know, weaving really personality into product development and product development into community and community back into personality and all of these things into real customer experiences. So this is something we're definitely going to talk about again this season, just under this topic, Lizzo's Yitty line finally launched a gender affirming shapewear this week. I feel like I've been seeing TikTok ads for this for a while. Now I'm realizing this was a hype driving campaign that they did, but super exciting to see someone as influential as Lizzo, especially with younger generations, especially with such strong values that she really puts out into the world, being able to connect that to commerce and seeing where that takes us. Another fun news, slightly food-related, but definitely not actually food-related. Walmart has rolled out a program to comp pickleball court reservations as the sport has really blown up. Again, all of these articles that I'm talking about will be linked in the show notes so you can read them for yourself. But Walmart is working to make pickleball more accessible for its customers. They have partnered with a company called Break the Love, which is a racket sports booking platform, they are offering 125,000 comped reservations at pickleball venues across the U.S. for their Walmart Plus membership program and store associates. Multiple levels to this, but we're staying fun. Quickly, from the broad sense, pickleball is one of the hottest sports ever. I still have yet to play it because... I am not good at competition and tend to get too mad and also don't like being bad at things. And I have no hand-eye coordination, but I have decided I will try it. I will at least try everything once. The second most interesting part of this is that it is being offered only to a certain amount of Walmart customers. So those Walmart Plus membership program customers and store associates, which I think is a very good sign for seeing what brands are doing to drive loyalty this year. I think we're going to see a lot of membership programs. We're going to see a lot of really interesting perks where if you shop from a certain brand, if you shop with a certain store, you're getting access to things that you will not get otherwise. So think about an Amazon Prime situation. Walmart Plus is obviously a great example. Thrive Market, a Postmates whatever their program is that they advertise to me every single week that I say no to, and therefore I'm spending too much money on Postmates or Uber Eats. But I think we will start to see a rollout of a lot of programs like this that are really working to drive loyalty and true 
true value for consumers buying from a certain brand over another one, even if that is a larger retailer like Walmart. Lastly, anytime I can bring up Formula One, I will bring up Formula One. Therefore, it will probably be every week until the season ends. So uh, my, one of my favorite headlines that I've ever seen about Formula One here is American entertainment style Formula One comes under fire after red flags in Australia. If you watch the Australian race, lots of red flags, more red flags than any other race in history. Three of them, lots of big crashes, lots of the drivers not being happy about it. It's an interesting conversation where we're starting to look at what does it mean when Americans get really into a sport and we're used to football and we want to see the action and the nonstop overtaking and crashing and red flags and all these things. But what does that actually do to the sport itself? We've even got Max Verstappen saying to the press, he won't be here long if F1 pushes ahead with the initiatives like sprint format shakeup for qualifying, quote saying, this does not help my decision to continue after 2028. So this will be an interesting thing to watch. What happens when we, as a country, as a a group of consumers ask for a certain level of entertainment, does it devalue a sport? And we will start to look at, does it devalue a consumer? Does it devalue any of the commerce around the sport? Or does it only increase the value of the sport? And how do people make decisions when they're in those high-level positions to think about money and culture and how they combine? So this is a little bit of a hot mess, KLF episode one recap. But that's the way we like it. KLF never keeps things nice and tidy. Ask my husband, always leaving cups around the house. So if you have enjoyed this quick recap, please leave a comment, rate and subscribe this podcast. Tweet at me at KD LaFrance and at Recharge Payments. And let us know how you think my takes were on some of these articles. Definitely at me if you want to talk about Daniel Ricardo. I will best you in every argument. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next Friday.